If you would take out the Word of God and turn to Acts chapter 19. We continue our series through the book of Acts that we are describing or calling Jesus Acts. Um, we began in Jerusalem and we saw how this declaration, this witness that Jesus is Lord and King over sin and death moved throughout Jerusalem. It moved to Judea. It entered into other cultures in Samaria. And now it is moving to the ends of the earth through one who, if we, uh, when we read the story, was considered the villain of the story, the Apostle Paul. And God is using him to take the gospel to the ends of the earth from a church in Antioch that we see was extremely diverse, that we see was committed to the mission of God, getting the gospel to the ends of the earth. From that church, Paul was sent out, and he is on his third missionary journey by the time we get to Acts 19, and he is now focused on strategic cities. He is focused on taking the gospel to, to these strategic cities. He's gone to Philippi. He's gone to Thessalonica. He's gone to Athens. He's gone to Corinth. And we find ourselves today in the city of Athens. Now, before we get into the text today, once the gospel moves to, or we're in Ephesus, once we move into Ephesus, we understand uh, at the end of chapter 18 that there's some theology that has to be corrected. Priscilla and Aquila, they meet a man named Apollos, who is a bold preacher of the gospel. He is very eloquent. And yet, in his ministry, it seems as though Apollos is still looking forward to something. And they disciple him and they say, no, the Holy Spirit has come. The kingdom has come in Jesus. We even see that with the disciples of Apollos as we enter into chapter 19. The, the, the missionary team here in Ephesus is having to correct this idea that you're waiting for something. No, the Holy Spirit has come in Jesus Christ. Jesus has given His church the Holy Spirit as a witness that He is Lord and He is King. And so we will begin in verse 11 today in Acts chapter 19. And yes, I'm going to read the whole chapter. Uh, we love the Word of God here. It is our uh, life, and so we're not going to complain about having to stand maybe for five minutes to hear it. There was one day in the life of the, the, the people of Israel where they stood the whole day and listened to the Word of God read, and we're not going to do that. We can take five minutes to, to read this chapter. I've already timed it. I had it playing in the car. How long is this going to take? Will it fit into the time allotted? And yes, it will, so bear with me. Stand in reverence to the reading of God's perfect word. Acts chapter 19, beginning in verse 11. Hear the word of Christ. As we have already heard, He is worthy. He is worthy. He is sovereign King, and He speaks to us in these moments. Verse 11. And God was doing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons that had touched his skin were carried away to the sick and their diseases left them and the evil spirits came out of them. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits saying, I adjure you by Jesus whom Paul proclaims. 
seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them and mastered all of them and overpowered them so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them. And in the, and the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. Also, many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver so that the word of the Lord continued and increased and prevailed mightily. Now after these things, Paul resolved in the spirit to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and go to Jerusalem saying, After I have been there, I must see Rome. And having sent into Macedonia two of his helpers, Timothy and Erastus, he himself stayed in Asia for a while. About that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. For a man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines to Artemis, brought no little business to the craftsmen. Then he gathered together with the workmen in similar trades and said, Men, you know that from this business we have our wealth. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away a great many people, saying that the gods made with hands are not gods. And there is danger not only that this trade of ours may come into disrepute, but also that the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing and that she may be even deposed from her magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. And when they heard this, they were enraged, and they were crying out, Great is Artemis of, of the Ephesians! So that the city was filled with confusion, and they rushed together in the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Articus, the Macedonians who were Paul's companions in travel. But when Paul wished to go among the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were friends of his, sent him and were urging him not to venture into the theater. Now some cried out one thing and some another, for the assembly was in confusion and most of them did not know why they had come together. And some of the crowd prompted Alexander, whom the Jews put forward. And Alexander, motioning his hands, wanted to make a defense for the crowd. But when they recognized he was a Jew, for about two hours, they all cried out with one voice, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And when the town clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, who is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple keeper of the great Artemis and the sacred stone that fell from the sky? Seeing then that these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rash. For you have brought these men here who are neither sacrilegious or blasphemers of our goddess. If therefore Demetrius and the craftsmen with whom 
he has a complaint come against anyone, the courts are open and there are pro-counsels. Let them bring charges against one another. But if any, if you seek anything further, it shall be settled in the regular assembly. For we really are in danger of being charged with rioting today, since there is no cause that we can give to justify this commotion. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. Oh God, I pray that we would have a clear picture of what it means to be witnesses of the gospel of Jesus Christ. God, I pray that we would understand what it means to to, to stand up and declare Jesus is Lord and King over sin and death. And, and we would have a cosmic, galactic picture of what that looks like in the spiritual realm. We would understand Satan and the forces of darkness. They despise us and they shriek and they howl at the name of Jesus Christ. And we would understand that we are simply to plod and preach to trust, to believe, and to hope in His kingdom as the battle rages. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. It's fake. These words from my dad ruined my life as a small child. I was watching professional wrestling on TBS as I did every Saturday night as a small kid, the NWA with Dusty Rhodes, Nikita Koloff, the Four Horsemen, Ricky the Dragon Steamboat, and Sting, and I loved it. And I'm enamored with this. And I'll never forget the moment those words came out of my dad's mouth. Arn Anderson and Tully Blanchard were screaming something on the set. And then they just started fighting. And there was this massive brawl. And I heard my dad sitting over in his recliner laughing, saying, you know this is fake, right? They'll go out to the same restaurant when all of this is over and have dinner together. Now, my dad was wrong. Because they did not, in those days, go out to the same restaurant together to make sure everybody believed it was real. But he was right. It was fake. And it ruined my childhood because I loved wrestling. And so every wrestling match that I would watch, every Saturday morning, every Saturday night, Jerry the King Lawler out of Memphis and Hulk Hogan, and, and, and I would watch these things. And in the back of my mind, and it's still today when I watch it, I hear my dad saying, you know that's fake, right? You know that's not real. But there is still something within me that wants to believe it's real. There's something within me that wants to be entertained by it. And yet I hear those words, it's fake, it's fake, it's not real. And that's the same way many of us view spiritual warfare. We read our Bibles and we're supposed to believe that there is this cosmic battle between God between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and Satan, and the forces of darkness. We read our Bibles, and we hear of angels and demons, and we, we hear of this galactic battle that is happening in realms that we can't see, and we hear those things, and we want to believe it's real. We know we're even supposed to believe it's real, but deep down, if we're honest, 
We think it's fake. We don't believe it's real. And we don't understand how it has anything to do with me on a daily basis. And because this war is raging, it's hard for us to understand as we wash dishes, as we pour cups of coffee, as we parent kids, as we go to work, as we sit behind computer screens, as we drive through uh, traffic, as we sit at baseball games, as we watch TV. It's hard for us to understand that we're in the middle of a battle. We know we're supposed to believe it, but there's a voice in our ears over and over saying, no, it's fake. It's not real. Don't buy into that. Now, the book of Acts we see from beginning to end centers around this witness, as we've already said, Jesus is Lord. And one of the things that that we've seen throughout the book of Acts is that declaration causes the forces of darkness to shriek, to to lash back. We've been privy to that throughout the book of Acts, that there is this warfare, there is this conflict around the statement, Jesus is back from the dead. Jesus is Lord over sin and death. And we get to Acts chapter 19, and we see the battlefield becomes the city of Ephesus. Now, Ephesus was a place where you wouldn't have had to convince anyone that spiritual warfare was real. This was a place where they believed in angels and demons. And they believed that their life was always controlled by these forces that they could not see. Everyone in Ephesus understood that. It was a place where magical art was practiced. There was something called the Ephesus Scripts where there was books of sorcery. There were books of spells that were sold in the city. And it all centered around a false god named Artemis. This multi-breasted fertility god was at the center of all of their pagan worship. And she was seen as one who protected the security of the city. Her temple was four times the size of the Parthenon. Her temple was considered one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. It was 400 feet by 200 feet, and it was held up by 60-foot columns. It was this massive temple of worship that stood at the center of this city that was haunted by spirits, that was infested by the forces of darkness. It would be like walking into a city and knowing that those who practiced with the Ouija boards or the cult or demon worship, we look upon those people as weirdos who sacrifice chickens out in the woods somewhere. But if you walked into the city of Ephesus, those folks would have been seen as trusted clergy. They would have been upstanding citizens who knew something you didn't know. And Paul walks into this city and he knows what is before him. There is a war raging. That's why he would later write to the uh, Ephesians, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over the present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Paul understands what he is up against in the city of Ephesus. So what does he do? 
How does he engage the spirits? In verses 8 through 10, we see that he does what he did in every other city. He shows up at the synagogue and starts preaching the gospel. He shows up at the synagogue and starts declaring Jesus is the fulfillment of all the Old Testament. He is run out of the synagogue and then he rents just an auditorium in the middle of the day. You see, in Ephesus, they had siestas from 11 a.m. to 1 p.m. And some of you are like, yeah, we need to reinstitute that. But during that time, Paul just showed up in a rented auditorium and preached the gospel for two years. That's how he engaged the forces of darkness in Ephesus. Preaching the gospel, pleading, persuading with the Jews, persuading with the Gentiles to believe the gospel. And he did that for two years until finally the word has spread from Ephesus to Colossae, Laodicea, and Hierapolis, churches that we read about elsewhere in the New Testament, that their their beginnings were founded in Paul's ministry in Ephesus. He preached the gospel in Ephesus and churches are being planted everywhere. But he's preaching, witnessing Jesus is Lord. And alongside his preaching ministry, as we read earlier, God brings these powerful signs and wonders. Paul is preaching the gospel. He's also making tents. And people are are hovering around Paul. And when he lays a sweat rag down, they pick it up and they take it to those who are sick, those who are possessed by demons. And they touch them with it and they're healed just through his sweat rags. And what God is doing in Ephesus through Paul is saying, oh, there is a more powerful spirit present than all of your exorcists, than all of your wizards, than all of your sorcerers. There is a more powerful spirit present in this man named Paul, in his message, in his witness. But in response to Paul's preaching, as we read earlier, we have these Jewish exorcists. They were sort of the first century ghostbusters of the day. Now, a Jewish exorcist was supposed to have more power because after all, a Jew, he he was involved in Judaism and they had all these mysterious names of Yahweh. They had all of this fascinating story in history and, and these Jewish exorcists could use the name of the Most High. And so they were supposed to be more powerful. It's kind of like if you have a, it's the equivalent to having a tattoo in Hebrew and people just look on you and go, wow, you must be really spiritual. These Jewish exorcists, they walk around and they use Hebrew and they use the name of Yahweh and people think, wow, they've got some power that no other exorcist has. And then the story centers on these seven men of a high priest named Sceva. And they decide, you know, Paul is preaching the name of Jesus and demons are leaving folks. How about we use the name of Jesus? Let's see how that goes. And they begin, they go into a place and they begin to try to cast out a demon using the name of Jesus. And notice what happens in verse 15. The evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, 
mastered them, overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. It didn't go so well, did it? The demon laughs at them and says, We've, in the spirit world, we've heard of Jesus. He is the Holy One from God who's come to destroy us. We know Him. And we know Paul. He's preaching Jesus. And God's using him in amazing ways. But who are you? Little Harry Potter wannabes. Who are you? You, you, you? you serve no threat to me. And notice he beats them pantless. They, they are left naked. Now if you leave a fight with no pants, you got whipped very badly. And the text says, wounded. They are bleeding. And I'm sure they were wounded physically and emotionally. But what does God do here? He is literally humiliating these exorcists. He is showing that they have no power in the cosmic realm. He is showing them literally, quite literally, with their pants down. And he is saying in this cosmic battle, in this spirit-infested city, there is a greater spirit at work in the message of Paul. Now this leads to great fear in Ephesus at the name of Jesus. And notice what happens all the way down in verse 18. Many of those who are now believers came. They, they hear of this battle. They hear of this humiliation. And many came confessing and divulging their practices. They're seeing them as useless. And a number of those who practiced magic arts, they brought their books and they burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it came to 50,000 pieces of silver. Now, the power in all of these books, all of these potions, all of these spells was in their secrecy. Only the professionals know how to use these things. Only they know what's behind them. And now there is fear at the name of Jesus. You can't just throw the name of Jesus around. You can't do that. You can't use his name like a potion, an incantation, and people are scared and they're coming forward with these magical spells. Even some of the believers there, we know, had tried to Christianize, Christianize their wizardry. He says, oh, you can't do that. No, this is about the name and power of Jesus. And they hear of Jesus and, and they understand they are to, the text says, extol him, bow in reverence before him. And they begin to burn these things to be totally free of them. Now, somebody has added up, this could have been up to $7 million in stuff that's being burned. And surely folks are standing around going, why don't we just sell those? There's still folks who practice those things. Let's make some money off of them. Let's give it to the, the building fund. Don't burn them. And yet they want to be totally free of these things. This is the old-fashioned tent revival record burning. You bring your horoscope guides, bring your magic books, bring your Def Leppard records down here, bring your Oprah books. Best life now. Bring all of that down here and let's just burn it. It's useless. But notice the way the spirits are humiliated in Ephesus. This story gives us a picture. The word is preached, first of all. 
Jesus is exalted. There is reverence before Jesus that surfaces hidden allegiances. And that leads to confession and repentance before the name of Jesus, which renders Satan and the forces of darkness powerless. Through this confession and repentance at the name of Jesus. And we see here in Ephesus, even among the church folks, that genuine repentance, it wasn't just this perfunctory thing that you got to go to. Repentance, confession, is seen as warfare here. In their divulging of these practices and turning from their powers to Jesus, they are engaged in cosmic warfare. How do you engage in cosmic warfare? How do you engage in spiritual warfare? The first thing we have to be worried about is repentance in our own lives. We want some three-step thing, some gimmick that's out there, some new Bible study so we can, we can be more spiritually mature. At the heart of all of it is repentance. What is going on here? The name of Jesus, as we have already sung today, is lifted up high. And I bow before him. And so I divulge. I open up and I am honest about all of my sin, all of my issues. I am bringing those things to Jesus. When you divulge the secret practices that you have behind a computer screen, what you are engaged in is spiritual warfare. When you are open and honest about the fact that there are sins in your life of discontentment, there are hidden sins in your life that are ruining your marriage, you are engaged in spiritual warfare. When you are open and honest about anger and bitterness and grudges that you are holding, what you are doing is you are saying, no, Jesus is lifted high. I can't hide anything from him. I'm bringing all of these things to Jesus. And when you do that, you render sin and Satan powerless in your life. Sin and Satan have power in your life in the secret realm. Things that you hide from other people. We spend all of our energy hiding. One reason we're so powerless, we lack so much fervency when it comes to spiritual things, is because we're using all of that energy to hide, to look pretty, to, to, to act like we have it together so others think well of us. Some of us spend all of that energy, what I call hedging, Hedging. If I, if I came up to you and said, are you a sinner? You would say yes. But you're only going to be so open and honest about that so that the truth's out there. You feel bad about your sin. You sort of punish yourself. But you're not totally open and honest. There are always things you're hedging in the background. And they have power over your life. You lack fervency in the gospel. You lack a witness for Jesus Christ because you are hiding and you are hedging and you are rendered powerless by sin and Satan. You divulge those things. You confess those things before Jesus. You repent of those things to engage in the battle. Now, I want to be very clear about confession and repentance. It's not just saying that the sin is true. That's what we think. I have to acknowledge that the sin is true, which we do. All of it's true. And that's it. No, confession and repentance is not just saying the sin is true. It's saying the gospel is true. 
Notice what's going on in Ephesus. Jesus is lifted up. Jesus is lifted high. Not the sin, not, not the hidden practices. It's Jesus. He is lifted up as the only one who's conquered sin and death. Paul would say he's lifted up above all powers, all authority. And so we bring our sin to him as the only one who can take care of our sin. The only one who will raise us from the dead. And so we are saying in confession and repentance, not just I feel horrible, not just I feel low down and rotten about those things, not just I feel sorry and I have to turn from those things, not just that I'm grieved by those things, things, but we are saying that is true, but the gospel is true. Jesus died so that you would confess and repent of your sin. And when you do, you are rendering, you are disarming, you are disarming the forces of darkness who, who shriek into your life with guilt, who, who are reminding you of shame. When you confess and you repent, you take their power away. That's what's going on in Ephesus. And we get privy into the spiritual realm. How it is affecting these forces. But notice what happens down in verse 20. There is confession and there is repentance. And notice the result of this. The word of the Lord continued to increase and prevail mightily. Warfare language. Repentance. Jesus is lifted high. Confession. The gospel moves forth. The gospel is taking over the city through repentance. There is spiritual awakening there because there is repentance in the life of the city, in the life of the church. We see in verses 21 through 22, Paul then makes travel plans. He wants to go to Jerusalem. He's collecting offerings. But ultimately, he just, Luke just throws this in there. Paul's going to Rome. And we know in the book of Romans, he wants to get to Spain where the gospel has yet to be preached. That's always his mission. And so as Paul's making these travel plans, notice verse 23, about that time there arose no little disturbance concerning the way. Now what's going on? Jesus is lifted up, there is repentance, and now the city is in a turmoil because people are turning to Jesus. There is the awakening of the forces of darkness. And as we read earlier, this spiritual warfare, this spiritual awakening, this spiritual disturbance begins to center around a man named Demetrius who was a silversmith and he was head of the idol makers union. And, and he starts noticing what's going on in the city. The gospel is moving through. People are repenting. For a while there, we thought the church folks were going to continue to buy our idols and they're not. They're turning from those things. They're burning books. Our business is hurt. Our business is losing profits. You see, in the city of Ephesus, the, the, the commercialism around Artemis was so lucrative that her temple eventually became a bank. People would buy these little idols in the gift shop with their Artemis breath savers and they, they, they would get these things in the gift shop. And, and this temple began to make lots of money so that folks in the city, if they needed a loan, they would go to the temple. They would go to Artemis. And now Demetrius says, guys, you know what's going on? This little ragtag preacher, Paul, down at the auditorium during the siesta time, he's going to destroy our business Verse 25, he gathered together with the workmen of similar trades, 
other idol makers. And he says, men, you know from this business, we have our wealth. This is our livelihood. This is how we feed our families. And you see and hear that not only in Ephesus, but almost all of Asia. Now get, get the language here. All of Asia, that's a massive piece of land. Notice, Paul has persuaded and turned a great many, saying many, saying the gods made with hands are not gods. This little preacher boy, Paul, he's all over Asia. And he's telling folks that you can't make a god out of silver. And now we're losing profit. There's danger not only that this trade of ours, it may become disrepute all through Paul, but also the temple of the great goddess Artemis may be counted as nothing. He's going to destroy this massive temple through just the simple proclamation of the word of God. And she'll be disposed from her magnificent, magnificence, she whom all Asia and the world worship. Notice the exaggeration here. And notice the irony. When they heard this, they were enraged and were crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And this continues throughout the city, even into a theater where there is chaos and there is confusion. But notice what he's trying to sell here. Because Paul and the preaching of the gospel is hitting his pocketbook. He has made this case throughout all of Ephesus that Artemis is about to be wiped out. Our city's economy is going to be wiped out by this little guy, Paul, who is just preaching the gospel. And notice the irony. Artemis is supposed to be propped up by the idol maker's business and this little itinerant preacher uh, who's preaching over in the auditorium he's going to wipe them out but notice at the heart of all of it is their money behind it all are finances the economy this would be like the package stores or the strip clubs beginning to protest our existence no that church is costing us money that church down the road is costing us money. Or, our, or, or the, the sports teams in a city beginning to say, you know, we can't schedule games on Sunday anymore. We, we, can't, we, have, to, we have to organize our schedule around the church's schedule. They're costing us money. It would be something similar to that. But we see in all of this, the God behind it all is the God of security, which is displayed in wealth here. People want their money. They are finding comfort and security and pleasure in their money. It's not ultimately the God Artemis. It's their security in their finances. And we see how the gospel even begins to shake and threaten this city to bankruptcy. And we see that the gospel always does this. You know, when when people begin to trust in Jesus and believe the gospel, one of the first things they start to worry about is money. How am I going to still sacrificially give and love others and follow Jesus and be committed to his mission? When they begin, there, there is tension that goes on in people's lives and in people's hearts. And we see that in the city of Ephesus. Folks are saying, how can this witness coexist with our financial security, with our wealth, 
with our pleasure in this way. And there is tension here. The witness will always be disruptive to the status quo God of wealth and security. Folks who become Christians begin to ask, how do I use my stuff for the glory of God? What does this look like in my life? I can't continue to give myself over to these things. And it's usually quantified with money. And we see that shaking here. Today, if you, if, if you come in and you say, I want to, to follow Jesus. I want to take up my cross and follow Him. I want to order my week. I want to order my schedule. I want to order my family after the gospel. Sooner or later, you're going to ask questions about money. Now, those aren't bad questions. Those are good questions that you have to sort out, that you have to answer. And we see here that it is at the heart of spiritual warfare. Jesus would tell us what we do with our money, what we do in our bank account declares where our heart is. And when there is a war raging in our heart, those questions will have to be asked. And we see they're being asked in the city of Ephesus. But notice, we continue verse 29. All of this commotion, all of this turmoil, this disrupting, as the gospel comes in and says there's no idol you can trust in over Jesus. Jesus is better. There's no house of worship that will provide for you. Jesus is better. There's no wealth that will provide for you like Jesus. The city turns chaotic, verse 29. It is filled with confusion All because of this silversmith who's losing a prophet. He has stirred up the city in an uproar. And they rush together in the theater, dragging with them Gaius and Articus, the Macedonians, who were Paul's companions. But when Paul wished to go to the crowd, the disciples would not let him. And even some of the Asiarchs, who were his friends of his, sent sent to him and were urging him, do not venture into the theater. But notice verse 32. Now some cried one thing and some another. For the assembly was in confusion. Notice, everybody's gathered in this theater. It would be like going over to the Roy Kidd Stadium. It held about 25,000 people. And everybody just gathers in there and they begin to scream. And they begin to take sides. Notice what the gospel is doing in Ephesus. There is, there, is this, there is this disruptive nature of the witness and people are in confusion and they're chaotic and they're yelling and screaming. And notice the end of verse 32. And most of them did not know why they had come together. Sounds like Twitter, right? Everybody just picks a side. Don't even know what they're yelling about. Don't even know what they're screaming about. Wake up each day. What are we going to hashtag angry today? What are we going to be mad about today? I got to pick a side and I got to yell and I got to scream. That's nothing new. That's happening in Ephesus, but it's happening as a response to the gospel. We even read in the chapter that the Jews say, we don't want to be at the center of this. Paul and all of his companions, they're causing trouble. Let's put this guy Alexander out front. He's a good speaker. He can present our case. He can distance us from Paul. And he stands up and says, I've got something to say. And nobody even knows he's there. 
Because they are yelling and they are screaming. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And they do that for two hours in this chaotic panic. Until as we read, the city clerk finally stands up and says, Guys, would y'all relax? Y'all act like Artemis can be defeated. Y'all act like Artemis can't defend herself. She, she's from heaven. After all, we have this massive meteor, this rock that's fallen in our city that proves she's from heaven. And y'all are panicking, acting like she can be defeated, that she is a threat, especially because of this little guy named Paul, who we should be more worried about, we see in the text, is Rome. We're creating a riot. We, we, we are at the point of out-of-control confusion, and we will have to answer to Rome for this. Now, notice in the text, it's the pagan majority, not the Christian minority, that's yelling and screaming and defending their faith. It is the pagan majority who's scared to death of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And they are stirred into this panic to the point they don't even know what they're yelling. They don't know what they're screaming about. Some of them are standing in the theater saying, why are we here? Oh, Artemis. Artemis is great. Ar Who is Artemis? Oh, yes. Hashtag Artemis. Artemis is great. And they're yelling. They're screaming. All because of Paul standing up in an auditorium preaching the gospel during nap time. And they're freaked out. And the city is losing control. And the irony here is over all of the yelling and screaming, the gospel is making the most noise. Do you see that? Chapter 19. Over all the powers, over even the economy of wealth in the city, and now over all of the chaos and confusion, what is being heard from the prophetic minority? The gospel. Just a group of people who are believing in Jesus, proclaiming the gospel, and it just keeps multiplying. It keeps spreading to the point the city is scared to death. The city is confused. The city is frustrated. And we see this. If you want to make an impact for Jesus, you want to be engaged in spiritual warfare, just be reasonable. Just be reasonable and preach the gospel. We, we do live in a culture where everybody just wants to be mad. I find myself doing that. Okay, let me find something to be mad about and complain about. And, and everybody wants to yell and everybody wants to scream. And everybody's offended all of the time. You really want to stand out what we see in Ephesus here? Just preach the gospel and stay calm. Have confidence. Be clear. Notice... They won't even allow Paul to show up at the theater. Paul says, I'm going to go in and take care of this. Now, Paul, you don't even have to go, man. Many believe that Paul was in prison at this time for preaching the gospel. And he's silenced from preaching the gospel amongst this commotion. And yet he still wins. Who at the end of the day wins? Paul. They say there's no reason to even be gathered here. And, and Paul is just steadily preaching the gospel and it's turning over the city. Why? The forces of darkness are shrieking. The forces of darkness are howling. And you want to have credibility? Stop yelling so much. Stop screaming at the world. 
Stop, stop thinking. Listen, the world will have to answer for rejecting Jesus. One, the world will not have to answer for rejecting you. And yet we act like we're the center of it all. Oh, you've offended me. Oh, my rights. Oh, whoa, oh. And we're yelling and we're screaming constantly. Here, Paul doesn't even show up. Determine that you're not going to spend an ounce of your credibility in the chaos, in the confusion. So many words are not being heard. We want the word of Jesus to be heard. And that's what we see in Ephesus, that it is just rising to the top. It's bubbling up over and over. But here's the point of chapter 19. Notice as we made our way through the powers, the forces of darkness, the economy, and then the chaos. Notice throughout the subtly, subtlety of the witness of Jesus. Now remember, this is the most spiritually haunted city that Paul's been to so far. This was the most demonic city that Paul's been to. And what is he doing? Just preaching. Paul's hardly even noticed in this chapter. Paul's not even showing up for the debate. He's just steadily preaching the gospel. And as we've read through the book of Acts, we have seen Scooby-Doo-like things throughout the book of Acts. We've seen places shaking. We've seen people who, who seem as though they're dead. They've been stoned and they get up and walk. We've seen the, this rushing wind of fire into this upper room and flames of fire. Or it was rushing wind and then flames of fire. We've, we've seen those things in the book of Acts. Why would God not display those things for us in the city of Ephesus? Why would he not say, okay, we're really going to engage in battle here. It's really going to get interesting when we get to Ephesus. We're going to have Holy Ghost machine guns. We're going to have holy water that melts the face of demons. We're going to have all of these great things in chapter 19. What does he do? What is, what is the Spirit telling us in Ephesus? Just preach the gospel. You want to engage in spiritual warfare? Just preach the gospel. Back to verse 20. So the word continued and it increased and it prevailed mightily. That is all warfare language. Paul there two years just plotting and preaching. Idols are being toppled. There's threats of the city being bankrupt. There is great chaos in Ephesus because he is just preaching the gospel. So you want to engage in spiritual warfare? I got a three-step plan for you. Preach the gospel, one. Just preach the gospel, sermons, small groups. At work tomorrow, share the gospel with somebody. Talk about what Jesus has done in your life. Get in your small groups and, and just love the word of God and share the word of God. It's not complicated. You'll be hard to handle in the spiritual realm if you're committed to the word of God. I mean, would you not say today that you have a hard enough time just doing that? If somebody said, you want to be engaged in spiritual warfare, I'm going to give you a 10-step plan, how to pray on the armor of God, step one, and then... No, we have enough trouble just loving and sharing the Word of God. It's not that complicated. 
Before we jump over into something extraordinary, we've got to just do the ordinary. Love the Word of God. Preach the Word of God. Dig into it. Share it with other people. Step two, repent. Repent. How many of us here today are trying, trying to be more committed to Jesus, trying so hard to get rid of indwelling sin, trying to feel like a better Christian, and yet we have all of these sins in the background that we've never really dealt with. We just keep hiding them. We keep hedging. We will bring enough out so I feel bad about it. You know I'm a sinner. Now let me put it back up. Maybe you lack spiritual fervency because you're not confessing and repenting sin, and it's not just a one-time deal. Christians should be the best repenters ever. We know Jesus is Lord over sin and death. And so whatever sin strikes me with guilt, with shame, I can immediately bring it to Jesus. He died for that sin. Why would I hide it? Repent, confess sin, and then relax. Preach, repent, and relax. Spiritual Warfare 101. This is exactly what Paul would tell the Ephesians in Ephesians chapter 6 when he's talking about putting on the whole armor of God. We try to make that into something it's not. No, he's saying trust the gospel of Jesus Christ. You've been outfitted with Jesus. Jesus is the mighty warrior. Take the sword of the Spirit. Preach, repent, trust, and relax. You're shielded with the gospel. Relax. You're a part of a kingdom that will overtake and topple all idols. You're a part of a kingdom that began at Golgotha providing peace for the cosmos. And some of you here today are going, that's really all that is involved in spiritual warfare? Really? Don't we have enough trouble with those things? That's it? No machine gun, Holy Ghost machine guns, no exorcisms, that's it. Preach, repent, and relax. And one reason we don't believe that enough is because Satan understands something we don't understand. Satan and the forces of darkness look at us and go, Jesus I know, Jesus I know. He's Lord over sin and death. He has been raised up and seated at the right hand of God. Who in the world are you? Who are you? I know Jesus. And maybe Satan understands what we've really been connected to in the gospel. Where where Paul would talk about this Jesus above all powers, all authority. You in the gospel have been seated with him. Far above all power, all authority, all sin. You've been seated above death as a victorious warrior. You just trust that it's true. You relax and you hope and you declare that it's true. Maybe Satan understands something that we don't. And maybe when it comes to spiritual warfare, if we would listen just a little bit closer, we would hear the voice not of a father, but we would hear a serpently lisp. Who says, oh, it's fake. It's fake. Don't worry about those things. Let's pray.